Good morning. It's 11 minutes before 8 a.m. You're listening to Raven Radio, KCAW in Sitka. Today is Friday, November 26, 2021. I'm Peter Apathy with Raven News. With the recent downsizing of Sitka's long-running community schools program, Sitkans are organizing to provide more programs for kids and families. The idea to revitalize community schools rose to the top of the crop at this year's Sitka Health Summit, and now the group is reaching out to the city for support. When the Sitka Assembly met on Tuesday, Andrew Frisky delivered a special presentation on the Sitka Community Recreation Initiative. My proposal to the Sitka Health Summit was simple. Revitalize and create a sustainable community schools model run by the city of Sitka. It checked all the boxes that the community members at the summit were looking for, um, among a hundred other ideas to improve Sitka health. Frisky says the program would be in high demand with hundreds of Sitkans looking for healthy outlets and activities. Currently, the city of Sitka has no community-wide program that helps facilitate recreation and activities, such as a community schools or parks and recreation program. Sitka may be one of the only communities in Alaska our size without this foundational program. Frisky said the demand is there and the pieces are in place, but they need the city's support in coordination and scheduling of city facilities. Assemblymember Rebecca Hemshute asked if Frisky could provide more context on how other small Alaska communities approach parks and rec. We're kind of a unique size in Alaska, so are there communities smaller than Sitka that have a community-run or operated rec program? You bet. Yeah, Petersburg, Haines were two of the, on Alaska, those are three specifics that we, we directly contacted and have. Uh, they're, run, they're called uh, Community um, Parks and Rec is how they're running their run programs. And that includes the pool, recreation, city league, and such. Traditionally, Sitka's community schools program was funded by the school district with money provided by the city of Sitka for non-instructional expenses. The Blatchley Pool and some student travel is still paid for this way. The operation of community schools, however, was turned over to a contractor several years ago and then to the Haim Center before finally closing down. Sitka's city government is gearing up to renegotiate contracts with the four unions representing its workforce. When the Sitka Assembly met on Tuesday, it went behind closed doors with legal counsel for a little over an hour to discuss the city administration's strategy for the upcoming contract negotiations over salaries and benefits. KCAW's Catherine Rose reports. Most city employees are represented by one of four unions. The last time the city negotiated new contracts and raises for its police officers, firefighters, and public works employees was in 2019. City Administrator John Leach said that they were looking to get a jumpstart on the negotiation process, which will kick off in the new year. We're really just looking for the Assembly's guidance on um, some bargaining strategy and just your overall guidance and, and kind of what you're looking for and what expectations are. Um, before we go into those uh, bargaining sessions. Again, not, not making really any, we're, we're not making any decisions at all. It's just, I, I'd like to hear the assembly strategy. The assembly went behind closed doors with outside legal counsel Kimberly Garrity for a little over an hour. When the group returned, it did not discuss union negotiations any further. But during public comment, David Nelson, who works at the Sitka Police Department and is head of the local police union, gave a small glimpse into what might be on the table. Um, I know we're all a little bit stressed. I know we're all looking at the consumer price index. 
I know we're all looking at inflation in terms of fuel and groceries and those things. But uh, I look forward to working with you all. Nelson said he would send the assembly an email with information he'd gathered from a union meeting in Anchorage earlier this month. But that led city attorney Brian Hansen to interject. I think the assembly needs to be careful not to get involved in direct no negotiations with any of the um, union members or their, their management. We've got to be careful. Um, you know, we have obligations to the union to, to negotiate directly with the union and not have union members um, directly negotiate with the ultimate decision makers, and that's the assembly. So I'm not criticizing you for coming up here. I'm just thinking we're at a point where we're about ready to cross that line. Nelson said any information he shared would be public and agreed that he would not pursue any negotiations at the assembly table. The city's negotiations with the unions will be spread out over the spring and summer of 2022. Reporting in Sitka, I'm Catherine Rose. Alaska is proposing to get rid of tuberculosis screening in schools. Critics question the plan since Alaska regularly tops the list of states with the most cases of the disease. But as Claire Strempel reports for KTOO, the state health department says the school screening program hasn't turned up a single case in years. In early November, the state posted a proposal to end universal tuberculosis screening in schools. The plan generated blowback online after Scott Kendall, an outspoken critic of Governor Mike Dunleavy's administration, tweeted about it. His tweet included the fact that Alaska has the highest rate of TB in the nation. Kendall's tweet is true, but there's more to the story. The state considered axing the program as early as 2016, during the Walker administration. State data said other methods of fighting the disease are more effective. As early as 2013, the state stopped requiring universal screening at schools in low-risk areas for TB. And in 2019, the state suspended the program statewide. Now, the state is seeking to take the program off the books altogether and make that suspension permanent. The state's health department refused an interview, but state epidemiologist Dr. Michelle Rothoff answered some questions via email. She wrote that between 2014 and 2019, the state didn't find any cases of TB in school screening, even though it tested more than 10,000 students per year. State data from 2019 shows that cases of TB in kids under 14 accounted for less than 15 percent of cases statewide. There were 58 cases of tuberculosis recorded in Alaska last year, according to Dr. Rothoff's email. She did not say how many of those cases were among children. Alaskans can still comment on the proposal. The deadline is December 27th, 2021. In Juneau, I'm Claire Strempel. A stalled Canadian mine that critics say could threaten southeast Alaska salmon has been granted an extension by provincial regulators. The KSM mines developers haven't found investors to pay for the project's construction yet, but as Coast Alaska's Jacob Resnick reports, KSM's location, about 20 miles from the border, has made it controversial for those who would live downstream from the open pit mine. The Kerr Sulfuritz Mitchell promises to be one of the largest open pit mining projects on the continent. But Toronto-based Seabridge Gold, which owns the prospect, has not found an investor to help build the gold, silver, and copper mine known as KSM. British Columbia regulators gave tentative approval for KSM back in 2014, with the caveat that it gets started in the next five years. But as that deadline approached, the company applied and received an extension good through 2024. 
Seabridge came back again last year, saying it needed more time. In filings with provincial regulators, it said the COVID-19 pandemic's travel restrictions prevented it from bringing potential investors to the remote site. COVID did have an impact, without a doubt, on our project. And uh, ultimately, based on our submission, uh, the B.C. government uh, agreed with that. That's Seabridge Gold's Brent Murphy. He's referring to the two-year extension recently granted by the province's environment ministry. Seabridge Gold is what's known in the industry as a junior. It does exploratory work and pitches investors with the hopes of getting a deep-pocketed global firm as a partner with the wherewithal to develop a prospect into an actual mine. Uh, there's still substantial interest in the project, and our ultimate goal is for the project to be joint ventured with a major mining company. And it's crucial for Seabridge Gold for that to happen before its regulatory approval expires, hence its need for extensions. Canadian mines built in watersheds that extend into the U.S. are controversial in southeast Alaska, and KSM is no exception. Seabridge Gold says waste from the mine would be stored in a watershed that drains into Canada, but the mine itself would be in the headwaters of the Eunuch River, which flows out near Ketchikan. Still, Murphy says the company is designing the project to minimize threats to fisheries and other resources. So essentially, if you look at the report prepared by the B.C. government and the Canadian government, there is no predicted impacts on Alaskan waters. Transboundary mine critics in southeast Alaska complain that B.C. regulators are allowing the permit to stay active based on an environmental review completed seven years ago. They think Seabridge should have to redo some of its analysis and go back to the drawing board. You know, it was kind of a troubling move by Seabridge, I think, to exploit the pandemic a bit here. What's, what's more concerning to us here is that B.C. let them get away with it. That's Chris Zimmer. He works with Rivers Without Borders and an environmental watchdog in Juneau, one of a number of groups that says the B.C. government doesn't do enough to regulate its mining industry. What I saw here is yet another, you know, part of a kind of a clear and disturbing history of deference to the industry. We saw it at Mount Polly. I mean, just kind of an unwillingness to really, I think, aggressively apply the environmental laws and regulations, but a clear willingness to give the industry every break possible here. He's referring to the Mount Polly mine disaster. In 2014, a tailings dam in British Columbia failed, allowing millions of tons of liquid waste to escape uncontrolled into a watershed that drains into the Fraser River, which hosts one of Canada's most treasured salmon runs. Imperial Metals, which ran Mount Polly, was never fined or sanctioned. And uh, we're very aware of the tailings ponds concerns, uh, i.e. Mount Polly and the other uh, unfortunate incidences that happened around the world. That's Seabridge Gold's Brent Murphy again. We are taking these concerns very seriously, and there are concerns held by both Canadian and American citizens, and we're working through those, and we're trying to be fully transparent on our design. BC's environmental officials declined to be interviewed. They referred back to their 27-page report outlining their rationale